Uh, to frame our time in Song of Songs chapter 6 this morning, I want to introduce you to a tool that's often used in discipleship called uh, the Challenge Invitation Matrix. It's right up here. And so you can see uh, that discipleship, as the Bible articulates it, and this is what we'll look at this morning, is always inviting us into that upper right-hand corner, which is high invitation and high challenge, right? Movement into that quadrant is what we're talking about this morning, uh, and we'll see how this romantic relationship helps both parties move into that quadrant. But this quadrant way of thinking applies to our relationship with Christ. It applies to local churches. Are we moving in the right direction? It applies to marriages as well. And the challenge is uh, that in all of these arenas, whether it's church, marriage, or relationship with Christ, men, there's a gravity that pulls us away from the upper right-hand corner. We're pulled down, we're pulled to the left. We're pulled to low invitation, we're pulled to low challenge. And uh, some would argue, out, even outside the walls of the church, that this movement away from high invitation, high challenge is having incredibly destructive effects on our culture. Philip Zimbardo is a Stanford uh, psych prof, and about six years ago, he uh, presented one of the most popular TED Talks ever given entitled The Demise of Guys. What he talks about in that video is not exclusively a problem related to men, but it is a problem related to men. And so I'm going to give you just a little clip of it so that you can understand the challenge of how we're tending to move away from the upper right-hand corner. Watch with me. Today I want us to reflect on the demise of guys. Guys are flaming out academically, they're wiping out socially with girls and sexually with women. Other than that, there's not much of a problem. Uh, so, so what's the data? So the data on dropping out is amazing. Boys are 30% more likely than girls to drop out of school. Uh, in Canada, five boys drop out for every three girls. Girls outperform boys now at every level, from elementary school to graduate school. There's a 10% differential between uh, getting BAs and all graduate programs with guys uh, be falling behind girls. What's the evidence of, being wi of wiping out? Uh, first, it's a, f a new fear of intimacy. Intimacy means physical, emotional connection with somebody else. Uh, and especially with somebody of the opposite sex who gives off ambiguous, contradictory, phosphorescent signals. <laughs> uh, and every year there's research done on self-reported shyness among college students, and we're seeing a steady increase among males, and this is two kinds. It's a social awkwardness. The old shyness was a fear of rejection. It's a social awkwardness, like you're a stranger in a foreign land. They don't know what to say. They don't want, know what to do, especially one-on-one -on -one opposite sex. So what I'd like to do in our time together this morning is articulate a vision from Song of Solomon, chapter 6, uh, that shows us how we move into that upper right-hand corner, how we become empowered people, how relationships can feed empowerment, uh, how church life can feed empowerment, and how us as the bride of Christ are called to be empowered, living in high invitation, high challenge uh, culture. So let me give you the context, right? Because the context in which any relationship will flourish must include both high invitation, high challenge. So this is for your marriage, but it's also for us as a church. And we discover this reality uh, in the unfolding love dance in Song of Solomon, and particularly this morning in chapter 6, what we discover is high invitation, high challenge, and the transformative power of that environment, and we discover in this chapter the sad truth that we often long for, not just tolerate less, we long for less. We long for less than God's best sometimes. 
So here's the context, because some of you are just kind of dropping in. It's maybe your first time at Bethany, or you weren't here last week, or whatever. Let me remind you where we are. There's a flow. It's like we're watching a movie, but we're just watching 10 minutes a week uh, to see the whole movie. So here's what's happening. We had this great bliss in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is like the kind of the perfect... Uh, moment of sexual and marital intimacy culminating in chapter 5, verse 1, drink deeply of love, imbibe, O lovers. She, and then what happens is in chapter 5, the woman has a dream in which she goes out looking for him. And we learned last week, if you are here last week, that love, because it's between two humans, is, is not an environment where blissful intimacy that is happening in chapter 4 is available on demand. Does this make sense? Like you can't always have blissful intimacy at any moment that you want it. Neither party can snap their fingers and produce this kind of intimacy. Why? Because both lives have dreams, strengths, weaknesses, responsibility, health, brokenness, illness, desires, and boundaries. In a healthy relationship, both parties have all this stuff going on, and so you don't always sync properly. So uh, what happens is uh, she's been looking for him, and then he's looking for her, and then uh, she's looking for him again. So here's, here's, here's how it happens. Chapter 5, verse 2 through 6, this is what it says. In her dream, she, uh, he knocks. He knocks, and she's asleep in bed. And what he's saying is, hey, I'd, can I come in and, you know, I mean, you know, you know. <laughs> hey, can I come in? And, and she's like this. No, no. I've showered, taken my slippers off, I'm, in, I'm half asleep, not tonight. Like, who hasn't been there, right? We understand what's going on here. So, so he says no, but then it's a dream. So what happens in the dream is mystically, it says, so he reached in through the window and began foreplay. Like, I didn't have to get up from the bed. He has long arms or whatever. We don't know how this played out, but he reaches in and then, she's, and then she's aroused. So then she's like, well, this might be worth putting my slippers on for after all. So she gets up, goes to the door. When she goes to the door, she opens the door, he's gone. So that's, that's the story in chapter 5, right? So then she goes out into the city to look for. And here's what's critical, foundational for all of our conversations this morning. What's she looking for? Is she looking for somebody to fulfill her sexual appetite? Here's the answer. No. She is not looking for someone to fulfill sexual appetite. She is looking for him. And him alone, that's all she wants. And the reason she goes looking for him and not just a man is because she understands that her sexual drive is different than hunger. And this contradicts conventional wisdom. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 sometime, you see that in Corinth there was a saying, food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, and it was a way of the Corinthians saying, sex is just like an appetite. So, if you're hungry, eat. If you're, if you're tired, sleep. If you're, and pardon my language, if you're horny, <laughs> get laid, find someone. That's what, that's what the Corinthian sexual ethic was. It was a tender culture, if you know what I mean by that. It was a hookup culture. It was a, it was a sex on demand culture. It was a, I have an appetite and it has to be met now because it's just like hunger. And the text is saying, no, it is not that way. She doesn't need somebody. She wants him and him alone. So even in the context of relationship, blissful intimacy only happens when everything aligns. And the reality is everything doesn't align all the time. Sometimes he's ready and she's not. 
She's got kids, house, work demands. He's been watching football all night, and now he wants to be intimate while she did the dishes and, cared, and took care of everything and vacuumed the house, and he did nothing, and then he, then he wants to be with her, and she's like, you know, I just don't feel like it right now, and he doesn't even understand it. And if you don't understand it, guys, you need to watch Demise of Guys because it's a big problem in our culture, right? So he's ready, she isn't, and then there are times when she's ready and he isn't. He comes home, he's tired, work, commute, maybe he's home caring for the kids, whatever it is, the point is we don't always align. So that's going on. And then she wakes up in chapter 6 and realizes uh, that he was there all along and it was a dream. So we pick it up in chapter 6, and if you have your Bible, you can just kind of turn there. Uh, uh, it's not Ecclesiastes, it's the next book over. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, and this is how it reads. Uh, so she, she's been looking for the guy all through the city, can't find him. So her girlfriends then say, where is he? Oh, most beautiful among women. Where's your beloved turn? We'll seek him with you. And then she wakes up, and this is what she says. Oh, he's right here. My beloved has gone down to his garden. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know what the garden is, Right? And if you don't know what the garden is, you still know what the garden is. When it says he has gone down to his garden, he's with her, so guess where he's gone? You know where he's gone. Does ever, are we clear here? If, if you don't know, ask your neighbor, because it's too embarrassing for me to say it right now, but this is the way it is, right? So, so he's like, where is he? Oh, he's right here. And not, not only is he right here, he's gone down to his garden. And so what this leads to is that her declaration that she is completely safe and assured in this love relationship, this is what she says, chapter 6, verse 2. My beloved has gone down to his garden. And then verse 3, this beautiful declaration, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. Boom. That's awesome, right? Because here's what she's saying. I belong to him. My garden is his. Yes, chapter 4, it's locked sometimes. I'm not a doormat providing sex on demand. He's not a doormat providing sex on demand. But though it's locked sometime, I'm not sharing my garden with anyone else. It belongs to him, and he belongs to me, and I belong to him. He's not always there in the way I want him to be, and I'm not always there for him in the way he wants me to be, but his affirmation and wooing have built a confidence that in spite of the fact that we live in a broken world and we don't always align, in spite of that, we are completely 100% secure in our love for each other. And I read that and I go, wow, how does that happen? Who in the room doesn't want that? Well, if you want that, I'm glad you're here this morning. That's what this chapter 6 is about. We see the environment that creates that. And here's the environment that creates that. First, it's his affirmation, which creates high invitation. And then, second, it's because of his high invitation uh, 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 culture that he creates in the relationship, she's empowered, and, and, and her empowerment then uh, puts her up there in the upper right-hand corner. And when you're empowered, then you become a person who, by the nature of who you are, is inviting to others as well, right? And so that's, that's kind of where we go here. So let's begin here with his affirmation of her, right? So I'm my beloved, my beloved is mine, chapter 6. And then uh, verse 4, he begins once again to praise her. Uh, and, and so look what he says. You are as beautiful as Tirza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Then he says, turn your eyes away from me, for they've confused me. We'll come back to that. But, but then he begins to affirm her. And you've already heard this in chapter 4, where he, like, he sees her 
And there's qualities about her that he loves, and he names them, right? Your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, again, don't go home and try that one on, guys, because that's not going to play so well in our particular culture. But culturally, what he's saying is, I love your, I love your hair, right? And so you can just kind of picture him burying his face in her hair and enjoying the smell of her hair and running his fingers through her hair. All, that's, all that beautiful stuff, it's all good. And then he, but he's not just saying it. He's not just doing it. He's affirming. He's, not, he's seeing and affirming. And then your teeth are like a flock of ewes, which is another way of saying, I see your teeth are very white. That's what he's saying, right? Uh, and that's the language you want to use. White teeth, not your teeth remind me of sheep. It doesn't work so well in our culture. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. And there's kind of this beautiful summary statement here in verses 8 and 9. Look at this. There are 60 queens, 80 concubines, maidens without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. Boom. Stop right there. Let's consider this. It's very, very important. So it's a high invitation culture because he sees and affirms, right? He's like, oh, I love your hair. Oh, I love your, I love your teeth. Oh, I, you know, and other, the, the more extensive version, chapter 4, I love your nose. I love your arms. I love your breasts. You know, on and on he goes. He's just effusive with praise. So he sees her and pays attention and affirms her. And I'm just going to stop right here and say very practically, this is kind of the... the uh, the way that romance thrives in an environment, we need to create high affirmation environments. All of us in the room do. I've never, Aaron, like Phil and I, have done, Phil does a ton of counseling, the little bit I do, I've never had anybody come in and say, you know, he's just encouraging and affirming me too much. I just don't know what I'm going to do with it. Like I just, I, no, this is the common thing. I can never do enough. It doesn't feel safe. I, like I feel controlled. I feel, I, I, I feel like uh, whatever I do, it's not good enough. Who I am, it's not good enough. And, and, and like, how do you move away from that? Affirm, high affirmation environment. You need high affirmation, which is a way of being uh, highly inviting. This is a safe place. I see you and, and I affirm you. Right? In these very particular ways. So that's that. But then it's not just high invitation. There's, there's a, a radical monogamy to this where he goes, look, there's 140 women here, like 60 concubines and 80 uh, brides or whatever. And then there's also uh, count, you know, countless uh, other women, on, maidens without number, right? It says, in spite of that, here's the reality. My perfect one is unique. In other words, I can say it this way, I only have eyes for you. You're the only one I want. I'm not, I'm not looking around, always comparing. It is you. That's radical monogamy. And I'm going to say to you, radical monogamy is a high challenge culture. But all of us in the room are invited to radical monogamy. And all of us need to recognize the high challenge in radical monogamy because it's in the Bible. It's all, it's shot through the Bible as well. I'll give you one, one clear example. Uh, uh, Jesus was tempted away from radical monogamy in his relationship with the Father. I don't know if you know that or not, but in the temptation of Christ, right? Matthew chapter uh, 3 or 4, I think it's 4, but whatever it is. Uh, uh, this, is where, this is where Satan shows up, and Satan says to Jesus, Look, I'll give you everything, every kingdom, all the power in the world. Look, you'll have, you'll have the authority to reign on earth. You want to bring peace? Justice, healing, hope, done. All you need to do, one thing, bow down now and what? Worship me. And, and then what, what happens? Do you remember? <laughs> Here's the, Jesus' response. Bam. Away. Get out of here. Like two technicals. Boom. You're gone. Right? So, like, get away, Satan. Why? Because here's Jesus. 
You shall love the Lord your God and worship him. Do you know the rest of it? Alone. Nobody else. No other lovers. And, and this, is so, this is so applicable because what a contrast to Jeremiah chapter 7 where Jeremiah in a vision is led into the temple and what he sees in the temple is people carving into the walls of the temple false idols. Like they're carving false gods into the sides and then they're, they're bowing down and they're worshiping false gods and they're saying, you know, we're in the temple. So yeah, absolutely. Do we love God? Of course we love God. Yeah, yeah, we're all about God. But it's just this, God and Baal, God and Asheroth, uh, God and the gods of the Amorites. Yeah, yeah, it's God, but it's God plus. Well, we don't have those gods, but we do the same thing. God, absolutely. Love God. Jesus, coolest man ever. I, I, you know, I'm all in. It's, for me, it's just Jesus plus upward mobility. That's the thing. Or it's just Jesus plus my own sexual ethic. Or it's, it's just Jesus plus I want to carry my controlling personality into discipleship. Or my, or my rage, or my fear, or my shame, or my guilt, or, or, or my propensity to live in an entirely virtual world. Yeah, I love God. It's just that I'm carrying all this stuff with me. I, in other words, how many lovers do we have? And the problem is, if we have more than one, we're in the wrong quadrant. Because the high challenge culture means this, that you will love God. God is your foundation out from which everything else stems. You have one to whom you're called to worship, one to whom you're devoted. It's not your spouse. It's God. It's not your, it's not your net worth. It's God. It's not your sexual ethic. It's God. <laughs> one. High challenge, right? So what you see here is he's affirming her in the context of this high challenge radical monogamy. And the fruit of his affirmation is that she becomes incredibly confident, right? Like who, what, what, who doesn't become confident when they're affirmed? So she becomes super confident. And in a moment, we're going to see how her confidence affects him. But for now, I just want you to notice her empowerment, right? Her, the empowerment comes because she's living in a high invitation, high challenge culture. So you see in 9b, like the end of verse 9, it says, the maiden saw her, like her girlfriend saw her and saw this love relationship, saw his affirmation of her, saw their radical monogamy. The maiden saw her, called her blessed. The queens and concubines saw her and they praised her, right? So uh, th what this is for us as a church is Matthew 5, 17. Because, uh, you know, as a church, we're called, Jesus calls us the bride of Christ. So all of us in the room are married at that level. We're all of us, whether you're single or married, we're all the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, we receive affirmation from God, right? Christ comes to us and he says, look, Ephesians 1, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. 2 Peter 1, you've been given all things to pertaining to life and godliness, right? You're, you're, you're saved, you're called, you're gifted, you're empowered, you're forgiven, you're healed, you're filled with nothing less than the resurrection life of Jesus, like you're blessed, like you're immensely blessed. Therefore, right, Matthew 5, 17, you now, because I live in you, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Like, be empowered. Live in such a way that others see what you're doing and they're like this. We want that. When people see the church being what the church is supposed to be, it's very hopeful. <laughs> so that when people see in this community... Classes for healing and transformation offered by Phil. Relationship with Bagley Elementary School across the street. Relationship with other schools emerging now. Plans for Community Life Center right here to better serve our neighborhood. Community meals. Uh, homeless shelter for women. I, I, and I, just, I, I could go on and on. 
mobile medical clinic to the extent that we are stepping in and being people of hope in a hopeless world, light is shining, that's empowered. <laughs> We're called to live there. So God says, hey, you're light. You don't become light. You are light. I've affirmed you. Do you believe it? Yes. Then shine. Let me put it in different terms because some of you go to the movies more than you read your Bible. The force is with you. Do you understand? Ah, now heads are nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we get it. Yeah. The force is very, very good. Yeah, the force is with you. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. You have nothing, like, we think that we have to get our act together. What we need to do is learn to appropriate who God already says we are. You are complete in Christ. The resurrected Jesus lives in you. Get on with it. <laughs> Live as people empowered because you are empowered. This is where we're going. So then here's what we find. Second, empowerment invites other people into a high-challenge, high-invitation environment. In other words, if you're an empowered person, you become a magnet and that you draw others in. So uh, what we're going to the context here in chapter 6 is this woman has been empowered, empowered by affirmation, empowered by uh, the challenge of radical monogamy. And because she's been empowered, she's very attractive. And she's very attractive to her spouse, as we see. So she represents the kind of an ideal, both for the church as the bride of Christ and for women and for all of us in the room. To live as people of confidence. Not arrogance, but confidence. So there's kind of a question here. Well, how do you know that uh, she's confident? And one of the ways that we know that she's confident is that when he affirms her, the way he describes her is amazing. Look at chapter 6. This is so interesting to me. So, again, when he begins his affirmation of her, this is what he says. You are as beautiful as Tirza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. Now, just stop right there. Like, what he, because here's what he's done. He said, you're just like two of the most, you, my wife, you're like two of the most amazing cities in the world. Tirza and Jerusalem. Both beautiful architecturally, both powerful cities in their time, and both uh, kind of inaccessible as well. <laughs> beautiful powerful uh, and inaccessible. Like, you would never see this on a Hallmark card today, right? Like, Happy Mother's Day, you remind me of Seattle and San Francisco. No one, like, who would say that? But that's, that's what's going on here. He's saying, you are like two amazing cities. Uh, and, and so the beauty of the city is hardly common imagery for erotic love. But he, look, dig a little deeper, here's what you see. Cities are awe-inspiring. Does this make sense? Like, I grew up in Fresno. That would never make it into this poetry, right? You're like, Fresno, that's an insult. <laughs> but, you know, I'd never lived uh, north of, uh, I'd never been north of Sacramento, ever, in my life. And then I applied to, uh, for Seattle Pacific University College at the time, like, to be a music major. So I got in my little red Mustang, <clears throat> drove north. I will never forget, to this day, Coming, coming down past Kent, past the SeaTac exit in my Mustang, turn a corner and see the skyline of Seattle. I still get shivers thinking about it. Still to this day, because now when I drive, I go, this is my, this is my city. I love my city. Isn't that amazing? And this, this is what he's saying. You're beautiful because you're mine. Just like Jerusalem. It's incredibly powerful. But then he goes on, 
And he says, you're, like, you're as awesome as an army with banners. In other words, uh, you inspire in me a little bit of uh, intimidation. <laughs> now, when, uh, this is very kind of counter-cultural and counterintuitive in uh, some evangelical circles. But, but uh, the, the only other place this word is used, awesome as an army with banners, is in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 7 where the Babylonian army is on the march towards Jerusalem and Habakkuk says to God, hey, the, Bab uh, the Babylonians are coming and God, you already know this, we don't stand a chance. In other words, when he, when, he, the, when he first looks at her, he's like this, I don't stand a chance. And can I say to you, very healthy. This is the way God has designed it. Like you see her well enough, you appreciate her well enough to, not, to, to be in a little sense of, a little bit of a sense of awe. Is she broken? Yes, yeah, we get, oh, we, oh, yeah, we get all that. But this sense of awe, actually very, very important. And so it's, it's, it's vital to see here that uh, she is creating in him kind of this sense of awe. In fact, the next verse is five. Turn your eyes away from me. Like when you look at me, pardon me for picking on first row people here this morning, but I'm, you know, when you, when you look at me, it's like I have to turn away. It's too much. Very interesting. Uh, men are appropriately in awe of the woman they pursue. And th then the woman is appropriately confident. It's actually very healthy, uh, not unhealthy. How many remember the first time you asked a woman out on a date? Guys in the room, who remembers? Any of that? Raise your hand, you remember. First time, yeah? How, and then, hands up, how many were nervous the first time that you did that? Like even more hands went up the second time than the first, which is statistically impossible, but whatever. We'll, we'll don't worry about it. Oh, it's like, this is what happened. Oh, now I remember. You're talking about nervousness? Yeah, I remember. Ninth grade, Julie Johnson, Fort Miller Junior High, Fresno, California. I want to ask this gal to Youth for Christ on Saturday night to a barbecue. Uh, I wanted to, but I couldn't. I could, like, I, like I'm sitting by the phone, and my, I'm never going to forget my sister, you know. She goes, what are you doing? I want to ask Julie to uh, Youth for Christ. My sister knew her sister. Oh, yeah, she's really cute. And I go, yeah, I know. That's why I haven't called her yet. Because look at me, man. I'm a disaster. Will this ever happen? So my sister tries to bolster my confidence, right? You can do it, you know. And she knows who you are. And you've got pretty good grades, too, and you play baseball, and, you know, she's trying to build me up. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And I'm so nervous. And so I finally, you know, my sister's standing right there, <clears throat> and I, she says, so pick up the phone, and then I, this is like in the 60s, so you're dialing. You guys remember this? Some do. She's probably had lots of nines because it took forever to get, like, <laughs> you know, hurry up. And so finally, and then she answered, and she answers the phone. Hi, this is Julie. And I froze, like, uh-oh. She actually answered the phone. I thought it was going to be your mom. And I asked for her, and then I take some breaths. Now, I don't have any cleansing breaths, and she's already on the line. What am I going to do? I froze, and here's what I said. Is Gladys there? <laughs> no, I mean, no way. Like, I picked the most obscure name ever. Gladys there? Uh, there's no Gladys here. Oh, sorry, wrong number. Dump. Hung up the phone. Am I... Here's my sister, Gladys? She's like, Gladys? And I just said, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Been there? Yeah, yeah, you've been there. Here's the deal. Uh, he says, turn your eyes away from me. They've confused me. 
Like what he sees in her is a confidence that's powerful. It's almost as if she completes him. And if you go back to Genesis 2, that's kind of what's going on, right? So she completes him and she knows it and she doesn't exploit it, but she enjoys it. And certainly, here's the thing, this is very critical. She doesn't pretend to be weak so that he will rescue her. Can I just say that again? She doesn't pretend to be weak so that he'll rescue her. Look, we're both weak. Men, women, we're all weak in the room. We need each other, but she doesn't pretend to be weak. Like, uh, like in fairy tales, there's always a woman trapped in a tower. You go to chapter 8, she is a tower. That's pretty powerful stuff, right? She's like, ho, ho, you want me? You're going to have to earn it. So, l- Listen. There's some application here both for individuals and for us as the church. For individuals, our call is to bask in the love that is Christ because we're the bride of Christ. Bask in the love of Christ. Watch what happens. Because, because what will happen is this. We'll develop an awareness that, yes, Christ loves me unconditionally. Yes, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, I'm, I'm declared, healed, forgiven. Now I take steps to live into the reality of that. But what will happen is slowly a confidence will infuse in me that Christ lives in me. And then I'll begin to expect fruit. And this should be the identity, can I speak to us as a church, of Bethany Community Church, that we believe that as we abide in Christ, as we move from being cozy and lazy to empowered, from bored to empowered, from stressed to empowered, that God will so use us to bless Bagley Elementary, to bless the Central District, to bless those in our homeless shelter, to bless our children, to bless next generations, to to create new leaders. God will use us in such a way that the light of Christ will shine through us. We don't hope for that. We expect it or should. And the reason we can't expect it is because we believe that Christ loves us and has affirmed us. So that's our calling. And some of us in the room, to be blunt, are stuck as spiritual consumers, cozy and lazy. We come, we listen, we leave. No. All of us have gifts to contribute to being the bride of Christ. So that's application for the church. But it also applies for all of us in the room. All of us are called to be people of confidence and strength, but a confidence and strength that's displayed in service, not bravado, and in in generosity. So that we're elevating others, not elevating ourselves, and and, and giving out of abundance, not living small. So husbands, you want confident wives? See and affirm. (laughs) Wives, you want confident husbands? Same thing, see and affirm. So, so we're called into that upper right-hand corner. Here's the challenge. Like the popular longing is for us to be in kind of a bored or cozy, lazy culture. Look at verse 13. He's, he's affirmed her, and now, you know, the two of them are going to go. They're leaving. They're going away somewhere. And then there's a group of guys in verse 13. Look what they say. And they're speaking specifically to her. They say, hey, come back, O Shulamite. That's the woman. Hey, come back. Come back, come back. We want to gaze on you. How sick is that? Do you understand what, they, what they're saying? They're saying, we don't, look, we don't need to know your name. We don't need to know your story. We don't need to know your hopes, your dreams. And plus, we realize that you already are in an intimate relationship. We don't care. We just want to look and get aroused. No, no, and no. <laughs> At every level, this is wrong. 
Because what it does is it creates for us like a vicarious way of living rather than living in the real world. The real world is up in the upper right-hand corner. The vicarious world is on the left side of the line, always. And so men and women, terrified of reality, are increasingly moving to the left side of the line. And when I, when I want to use a woman, uh, then I go to Tinder. And if I can't find somebody on Tinder, then I have pixels available. And if I have pixels available, that leads to pornography and chronic masturbation and shame and addictive behavior. And God says, look, it's, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. Why are you living on the wrong side of the line? Move. You need to move. All of us need to move. And there's only one way to move, and the way to move is move. <laughs> and, and there's a word for that in the Bible, repent. That's the, that's the biblical word for moving. Did you know that? Move, repent just means turn around. Hey, you're living, you're living in the bottom left. Leave. Go somewhere else. Take steps. So you're living in fantasy land, whether it's porn or addiction to work at the cost of intimacy or addiction to perfection at the cost of intimacy or addiction to shame and insecurity because you believe what others say about you rather than Christ, you need to move. Leave that land and come into the land of empowerment because that's the life for which you're created. Like, how do you move? Well, first it begins by believing that what God says about you is true. Uh, there's a beautiful song. I'm going to show you the lyrics here just for a second. Mirror, mirror on the wall, telling lies, pointing out your flaws. We've all been there, right? Like, we go to bed at night and... In the, in the you know, safety and anonymity of our bedroom, we're like, yeah, I'm no good. And there's little voices right here on our shoulder, little ghosts saying, remember that failure today? Remember that anger? Remember that lust? Remember that whatever? Tell you lies, point your flaws. And then here's Jesus. That isn't who you are. That isn't who you are. It might be hard to hear, but let me tell you, dear, if you could see what I, Christ, can see, I know you'd believe that that isn't who you are. There's more to who you are. So when it's late and you're wide awake and it's too much to take, don't you dare forget that in the pain you can be brave and safe. You can live in reality. Why? Because here's the truth. I, Christ, see you dressed in white. Don't you love that? I see you dressed in white. Every wrong made right. I see a rose in bloom at the sight of you. Irreplaceable, unmistakable, incomparable. Darling, it's beautiful. This is Jesus' view of you. Believe it. Because freedom starts there. And when we say, oh, no, no, that's not me. You don't know my story. Yeah, I may not know your story. I don't need to know your story. I know that you are complete in Christ if you're in Christ. And, and, and now you're called to live into that completeness, completeness rather than continuing to default to the wrong squares. And particularly continuing to default to the virtual world. So we're called to embrace what God says about us. And then we're called to seek high challenge, high invitation environments and people in our lives. We have to move. You know, um, three summers ago, my wife Donna and I, uh, we took sabbatical. So we were in uh, Europe and we're hiding in the Alps. One of my favorite days, not Donna's so much, uh, but still a, a good day for both of us, it was this day that was, the hike was called the Trail of Seven Summits. And trail is a generous word. It, like we were literally on a mountain ridge in the Alps, and there's seven crosses, and we got to go on, stay on the ridge the whole way, up, down, up, down, seven times, right? And, and uh, most of the way, incredibly exposed. Like, not, I, would, I wouldn't call it climbing, maybe because I'm a climber, but here's the deal. 
if you slip or trip on your shoestring, you'll die. Because you'll just, like, it just drops off on both sides. I love, I actually enjoy that environment. Not everyone does. So we ended up hiking with a couple of uh, teenage German girls. And we get to about the fifth summit. And we, go, we see we go down and then up. And it's already late in the day. And then we begin to assess. Oh, it looks exposed. Oh, I've got sunburn. Oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, we're all kind of whining. And then here's Inga, 17 years old. Typical German, because this is what she says, right? We're all complaining. And then she says, and yet we must do it. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Here's the deal. I'm your pastor. And I'm saying, and yet you must do it. You must move. If you're here this morning, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you need to move. You need to move out of your virtual world into reality. Uh, and so I'm going to invite you to respond right now. Some of us have consumer faith. You know what I mean by that? We take and take and take. We're not giving. We're not giving financially. We're not using our gifts. We're not involved. You need to move. Some of us have virtual obsessions, spending more time on Facebook than reading our Bible. We're in a fantasy world. Some of us are, are, are dealing with porn, and nobody knows it, but you know it. And, and, it's, and it's creating, uh, like, intimacy challenges in your marriage, and if you're not married, it will create challenges. You need to move. For some, it's sexual addiction. For some, it's excessive spending. For some, it's your relationship with food. For some, it's body image. For some, it's shame. But whatever it is, and yet we must do it. We, we, we need to move. So I'm asking you this morning to say, I repent of, and you name what God is speaking to you about. I, I repent of. I'm moving. And I'm moving into empowerment. And you name it, however you want to name it. And you put in these books here. There's four of them. If you're left-handed, stay on the left side of the book so other people can write to. But you put in these books, and then, I'm just gonna, then I'll say to you, this is my promise to you. Tomorrow night I have a very important basketball game to watch at um, 6 p.m., 5 p.m. When that's over, I'm coming in here. There's, I'll be alone in here. I'll be alone. But I'm going to read every book <laughs> and pray for you because I don't want us to be just another place. I want us to be the body of Christ. We're called, and it's time to move. Let's respond. Just come up. Fill the books, if you would, so that we can share and pray for one another. Let's worship.